it's shameful because the journalists are calling Muria as the worst camp in the world. I call it Middle East, I call it hell. We are all aware of the unfolding crisis in northwest Syria and the terrible human toll on civilians. Today on Context, stalled on the refugee highway, we look at the high cost desperate families are paying for safety. I'll speak with the Canadian aunt of Alan Curdy, the Syrian boy whose tiny body washed up on shore after she had paid smugglers to help get him to Canada. Tima Curdy's grief shocked the world. She's here to talk about the loss to her family on the stalled refugee highway to safety. And we'll go to an aid worker on the ground in the Maria refugee camp, a place so desperate, the UN is calling for it to be evacuated again. I'm sure hell is better than Maria. That's coming up next on Context. And we go now to Ottawa for an update. Michael Casasola is the Senior Refugee Settlement Officer with UNCHR. He joins us from Ottawa. Michael, um, I, I'm shocked that we're looking at 70.8 million people forcibly displaced looking for homes. What's your insight on the scope and scale of this tragedy? First, thanks for having me, Lorna, and thanks for looking at, th at this issue. Uh, when we talk about 70 million refugees, of course, you have to think about 70 million lives. Uh, 70 million individuals, most of these individuals are women and children. But what's really interesting about the 70 million is that only about 25 million of them are actually what we call refugees, people who have fled violence and war and are across the border. About 41 million of those are still inside their country of origin. So think of the 900,000 Syrians who have been forcefully uprooted this last week and in, north, in the uh, northwest of Syria and who are fleeing violence. Um, but the, also within this number is, is two elements. There are new crises that are happening, like the Sahel region of Africa, but there are also protracted or long-standing uh, situations where people have been displaced generation after generation. On Monday, there was an international conference in Pakistan acknowledging the 40th anniversary of the displacement of Afghan refugees. And still, 40 years later, many of them have not been able to go home. In fact, in Afghanistan, just this past year, another 400,000 people were displaced. What is happening then internationally to address this need? Well, it isn't all bad news. Um, in December, UNHCR helped host with, with uh, a number of partners, including Canada, the Global Refugee Forum. And it was a forum in which we brought together not just ref states who host refugees who, or fund assistance to refugees, but we also brought in other actors because we know we can't go it alone. Right now, our budget's about $8.6 billion, $8 billion, and yet we only receive about half. Last year, we didn't even achieve half of that. So we, need, we know we need other support because many of the states on the front line feel like they're addressing this alone. So in addition to sort of seeking the, seeking the support of countries, for example, Canada gave $8 million at this conference towards what we call our winterization program, where basically providing winter aid and assistance, blankets, uh, heating oil, etc., to Syrian refugees. But it's also to bring in other actors like the World Bank. But even, for example, uh, Canadian universities made a pledge at this conference, pledging additional spaces for education for refugees. There's a wonderful program in Canada through World University Services Canada called the Student Refugee Program, through which universities, colleges, and CEGEPs sponsor students, about 130 students a year. And what many of these universities are making a commitment to grow this program so more refugees can access education. 
Um, I, a lot of people feel uh, we're, we're maxed out, it's too full. What would you say to people who think we've been there, done that, enough of this refugee problem? Actually, this is actually a key theme during the Global Refugee Forum. The way we often perceive refugees is this idea that you somehow, I mean, and we're probably just as guilty of it because we present the need, we present the most vulnerable. But in many ways, we have to reshape how we look at refugees as people can contribute to the economy. And their important message throughout this is, is the need for refugees to be able to access livelihoods, the re need for refugees to be able to realize opportunities so they can provide economic contribution. The Canadian experience is actually tremendously positive in terms of how refugees can integrate and, and contribute to the country. Study after study, the, the most recent census shows that refugees have employment rates similar to Canadians, that they, are, that they own houses uh, at similar rates of Canadians. They're in the same levels in terms of managerial functions and such. But most importantly is that that next generation in Canada does well. And so Canada has done a really good job of integrating refugees. It's one of the areas that, in fact, it could export to other countries. And Canada's learned in the process that refugees, can, can, Canada can also benefit from them. Okay, well, thank you for helping us remember how vital it is to stay engaged on refugee settlement. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Michael Casasola, Senior Refugee Settlement Officer from the United Nations Commissions of Refugees in Ottawa. Thank you for joining us. Well, to help us understand where the refugees are, why they're there, how they're going to get moving, Context producer Fatan Al-Faraj. Fatan, thank you for doing this research. Help us understand this crisis. Well, Lorna, based on the new NHCR statistics for the year 2018 alone, uh, more than 70 million people are forcibly displaced worldwide. And now 26 million are in camps. Okay, staggering numbers. Uh, what are some of the countries? Where is this located? Well, uh, they include Afghanistan, uh, Sudan, uh, Myanmar, and Somalia, with the majority being from Syria. Okay, so we've got a map here. These are the troubled spots then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and speaking of Syria, it's, it's a crisis again. Idlib is in trouble. Yes, if you recall back in 2017, uh, Idlib was hit by a chemical attack that took the lives of over 80 people, including children. Uh, since December of last year, half a million of Syrians fled their homes to the Turkish borders, mostly women and children. Okay, and so many have died escaping there, trying to get over to the coast of Turkey. What do we know about that? Uh, yes, Lorna, in addition to Turkey, there are camps also in Pakistan, Uganda, Sudan, and even in Germany. Context has been to these camps. Cox's Bazaar broke our heart. Um, couldn't believe that this, and this is still no better. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we've been to the camps in Turkey as well, but um, people are describing this one now that's receiving Turkey's casts off as hell on earth, Moria. What's going on there? Yes, that camp is on the island of Lesbos in Greece. Uh, I was there two years ago. It's very difficult to explain uh, the conditions there. Uh, but we hear many stories. Uh, I heard from refugees themselves how bad the living conditions are, standing for hours to get a meal. And in many cases, the food would be rotten, no water, no safety for women uh, or children. Women okay. get raped, uh, children do not get any kind of uh, education. Well, joining me now is Aubrey McQuaid, who's team lead with Beyond Borders 
Aubrey, uh, you're there at Camp Moriah. It is being called a hell on earth, a place with a maximum capacity of 2,500 people, now 20,000 people. What is life like on the front lines? It's been pretty insane. Um, the tensions in camp are really high. Um, it's definitely an overcrowded space. Um, you walk into camp and it's just always busy. Um, people are queuing in lines for many different things, whether that's to see the doctor or for food. Um, there is no longer enough uh, places for people to stay. Originally, the capacity was, like you said, 2,000 uh, 500 and at that point people could live in ISO boxes and have like containers to themselves. Um, the next step from that was large tents and they've run out of those and so people are living in simple like pop-up tents and tacking together tarps and other types of material to try and build a structure around it just to protect themselves from the elements outside. The United Nations has called for the evacuation of the camp. Do these people have a place to go? It doesn't look like it. Um, at the moment, we've we've called for evacuations before. Um, people have asked that the vulnerable people be taken off the islands, um, and it's it hasn't happened. Um, the next step for them is normally Athens, um, but it's that is a normally a pretty long journey where you have to get uh, to a certain point within your asylum interviews before that you can get transferred there. And can the Greek government do anything? Is it doing anything? They are attempting to. Um, I know that they've brought on more um, people to work with the asylum cases um, to process them, but it's just beyond the capacity, I think, of what they can handle. Um, this really needs to be uh, a European um, handled by the, the European government and not just selected to Greece, who's been bearing the brunt of this crisis. And it does seem like the camp has run out of patience with it. Uh, lots of tensions, anger, even riots there in the camp. What are you experiencing? Yeah, I left, um, I would, I've been serving with Beyond Borders for the past year um, and was here over the summer and had to leave in the fall. And when I left in the fall, there were about 12,000 people in the camp. And at that point, um, the UN had declared it inhumane and that it couldn't continue. And everyone around me was saying, this is a boiling point. It can't get any worse. Um, and it has. Um, I've returned just about a month ago um, to 20,000 people in camp. Um, and yeah, it's pretty discouraging to see um, that not much has happened since then, that little's been done. There's a lot of talk of things being done, um, but not much is happening. Um, there are several big protests in the beginning of the month um, that ended up, um, a couple made it to the center city of Mytilene um, where crowds gathered by um, a theater and were chanting, Moria's no good, asking for freedom, um, but also apologizing to the people of Lesbos. Um, one of the, I think the second protest, one of the ongoing chants was, Lesbos people, we are sorry. And the refugees themselves know, like, this has been a lot for the res island residents to, um, to continue to offer hospitality 
Um, and I think they, they know they're like, we, we don't want to burden you. We just want to have a life. Um, but it's definitely caused a lot of tension, um, both among the refugees and the locals. There's a um, high stress among the local population right now. Many of them don't feel safe just because of the crowds um, who are here as refugees and because the tensions are so high and people are angry, um, people have become quite afraid. Um, and it's definitely uh, changing things on the island. Um, I the anger is because in... they are stuck, right? The anger is because they are stuck. There doesn't look like any future for getting on with their lives of being able to find jobs, school, and homes, right? Yeah, it's just a waiting game. And many of the people I speak to often still have hope. They're, they tell me, well, I'm waiting to get my ticket to Athens, and after that, I'm hoping I can go to Switzerland or Germany or Canada. Um, but it's their patience is running thin because they've been waiting and asking and applying for a long time. Um, and it's definitely wearing on them because it's um, some people have described it as uh, emotional terrorism because these people are here waiting and they don't know if they're going to get an acceptance letter or a deportation. Um, and so there's that you're here and you're stuck for months and you don't know what you're going to end up with. Aubrey, it's incredible that you have that job there on the front line. Thank you for bringing kindness where it's most needed. And our prayers are with you today. Thank you. Thank you. picture there that shocked the world five years ago when Alan Curdy's tiny body washed up on shore. Alan and his mother Rihanna and younger brother Galib all drowned trying to get to Canada. Tima Curdy of Vancouver is the aunt to this family and she joins us now. Tima, thank you so much for keeping their story together with us. Take us back to September 2nd, 2015, when your loss of Alan became the face of the world's refugee crisis. How did you hear about it? I will never forget that day on September the 2nd, 2015, when I heard the tragic news. There is no word really I can describe my feeling. I'm sure it touched millions of people's heart around the globe. And I believe at that moment, God just shined the light in the image to wake up the world and say enough suffering and enough innocent children dying and we need to take action. Many of us felt that way about that precious, uh, this precious photo. But you were the active Canadian sponsor of this family. Um, we, we, we think we're so familiar with sponsoring, but why was it necessary to pay a smuggler to get your family moving on the refugee highway to Canada? You know, the guilt that I had no choice to pay that smuggler because I've been to Turkey and I saw in my own eyes how not just my own family, how they live, trying to reach to safety for their own children. I remember, you know, when I was trying to bring my family to Canada, of course, you know, it was impossible to do that. 
And those desperate people, what other choice they have, you know. But you had, you had the paperwork. Um, help us understand how this refugee highway gets stuck like it did for Alan and his mom and his brother. How did it get stuck? You know, they have hope and they trust the smuggler because like many other family, they believe in God that somehow they're gonna reach to safety. And uh, at that night, I, from the last phone call, I, I spoke to Rihanna and, and the boys. And um, the last phone call was, you know, we were joking and then, you know, the water first was very calm. They assured me that they're gonna make it to safety. It was almost 20 minutes to reach Greece. But when they were in the middle of that sea, you know, the boat capsized. And um, Abdullah was holding his wife and the two kids. And, uh, you know, as a mother, what Abdullah told me, her last word was, she let her hand go and she said, I know you are struggling to just save this, the kids. And she let her hand go. It's just... Uh... In memory of this uh, beautiful family of yours, you have written their story in The Boy on the Beach. What do you hope this book teaches us? The Boy on the Beach book is not just about my family. It's about many other thousands of people who struggle and they need our help. I hope this book will bring awareness to the world. It's about family, it's about love. It's about what people can do to, to give the future for their own children. And so would you challenge Canadians to still be sponsoring, to work through the paperwork, what should we be doing for these many families? Your own sister is stuck in Turkey. You know, the Canadian people, you know, I cannot thank them enough because they are the one who make, hap make it happen to sponsor many uh, thousands of uh, Syrian refugees and give the children a beautiful life. I, I want those Canadians to continue and um, to tell our government to keep our door open to the people who need our help. And we should um, bring in more refugees because there is many family who want to bring their own family to Canada. And Canada have the capacity to bring in more and it's good for the country. You know, if we focus and invest money and effort to to those young children and give them the safe um, uh, life, you know, they are the one that's gonna pay back to this beautiful country. And I know many Canadian people there, out there, willing to help. And I encourage them to keep doing it. And our Canadian government should make the immigration uh, process more easier, like what they did in 2015. And we need our government to be speeding up the backlogs so there isn't the desperation. 
and, and that get these families that are sponsored, get them moving, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I understand, you know, there is million of people continue to suffer, you know, if it's from Syria, uh, what we see is going on in Greece and people are stuck in a refugee camp. When I personally, you know, hear a story um, at the refugee camp from the parents, you know, all their hope is from us to be their voice. You know, they always cry to me because they say, look at our children, what kind of future it's waiting for them. They only have one hope that all of us, you and me and everybody else can give them. All right, Tima Kurdi, the aunt of Alan and Gallup Kurdi, sister-in-law of Rihanna, and the author of The Boy on the Beach. Thank you for uh, sharing your story so publicly and challenging us all to make a difference for families like yours. Thank you. Coming up, what happened when Context Donors and a small Ontario church partnered to bring a refugee family to Canada? That's next. Well, the United Nations says the Syrian refugee crisis is now worse than it was when the conflict began. And you may remember, Canadians had an enormous conscience when this conflict began in 2015. And Joanne Beach is the director for the Christian Missionary Alliance's Justice and Compassion Ministry. Joanne, thanks for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Lorna. We first began talking way back in 2015 when we realized we've got to start taking some of these refugees. Mm. And it became very personal for us because you introduced context into how it could care for a refugee family. Mm. And just remind us what Canadians needed to do in 2015 when we said yes to that first wave of 25,000. Well, the government has a great program called the Private Sponsorship of Refugees. And so we encourage churches and individuals to consider sponsoring uh, refugee families, helping them to come to Canada and resettle and start a life of new hope. And uh, we talked and we realized uh, as, a, as a media program, we really didn't have uh, a, a wide depth, but we knew we had connection to churches. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we were thrilled that someone in our audience said, I'll pay for it if you can find the church partnership. And together, you were able to help us make the match. So the Saloon family was sponsored through the generosity of one context family watching mm -hmm. there at home partnered with your church your small church and um in Ancaster yes okay yeah. and so this is a shot of them being on context that very first time way back in 2015 tell us about this moment when your pastor's on our set when we're realizing we can really make this happen it was amazing that uh, our church had just decided, small church plant of maybe 40 at the time, okay, we want to respond. And so we're just going to step out in faith and trust that God's going to provide the money. Well, then you introduced us to this funding couple that had the, just a passion 
for wanting to help. And so you matched us up. We had a barbecue at your house. They liked us. <laughs> we loved them. Everybody and, liked everybody. Oh, and, and it was yeah. just such a, uh, an answer to our prayer as a church um, that we had stepped out in faith to want to, to help to resettle this family that we had been introduced to through someone in through your audience. Well, through context, yeah. Mm. And, and so, but let's just fast forward it because this is what happens when people are good neighbors like what happened. Mm -hmm. And so the saloons are doing great. And now other family members have been able to come. Mm -hmm. And the crisis is as worse as ever. To those who are saying, I'm just too scared to start the refugee process, sponsoring in, what would you mm. say? There's still such great need. Even the families that have tried to return to Syria, the infrastructure is so damaged there. Nadel's parents, we had applied to bring them, uh, and the visa office in uh, Lebanon decided that it was safe enough for them to go back because the fighting had not had left their area. But they're back in their village, but there's no running water, no electricity. It's very, very difficult to live there. All right. And as we saw in the camps, such a great need. Joanne, thank you for telling us it's possible. Mm. Get on it and keep <laughs> making partnerships and great things can happen. Absolutely. Okay, Joanne Beach from the Christian Missionary Alliance and uh, a partnering agency with us. Thank you very much. Well, here at Context, we're fortunate through our faith to find the humanity in tragic stories like stalled on the refugee highway. Stories like the Saloon family who Joanne and I were just talking about, a very special family to hiss here at Context. Christine Yu has this update. So how are you doing? We are doing very good. So how do you like being in Canada? It's really fun. I like all of my friends. I like it. It's really fun. Everybody's a lot nicer here. Everyone's always saying sorry and apologizing <laughs> and it's fun here. And you recently just became Canadian citizens. How do you feel about that? We are so proud to be a Canadian citizen, actually. It's a big uh, movement for us. It's a big step for us. I just, we just feel like we are safe, um, freedom. That's what I feel inside me. And it just, like, uh, for me, it feels like very happy. <laughs> and you have family back home still. Uh, what are you hearing from them? Uh, it's um, the situation. It's hard over there because you know the the country is being through war since eight years. It's getting a little better, but it's still hard to find a job. Still hard to find the way how to live. Everything is super expensive. People lost them houses, lost everything. So it's, the situation after the war is very bad. But actually, it's still unsafe right now. Like, it's a little bit better, but it's still unsafe. We still contact with them. We pray for them. We try to help as much as possible. And how has your faith helped you through this transition, this whole process? We never, we never lost our faith. Since the beginning, when the war started, it was shocked for us, but then God gave us this strength and support. And with everything we went through, we feel always there is some power and some peaceful in our life. For all of us at Context, be part of the solution of getting people moving on the refugee highway. They are stalled. 70 million people looking for a permanent home. Think carefully. 
about what we can do to make a better tomorrow for families just like you and I who need a new beginning of peace and security, which Canada, in all its bounty, has plenty of. Thanks for watching us. Be sure to look up our links on our website for how you can make a difference. It's great to have you join. Thank you.